This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Welcome to the Keep Leading Podcast, a podcast dedicated to promoting leadership development and sharing leadership insights. Here's your host, the Leadership Accelerator, Eddie Turner. Hello, everyone. This is Eddie Turner, your host of the Keep Leading Podcast, the podcast dedicated to leadership development and leadership insights. Have you ever felt stuck? Well, today's guest has written a book that will help us get unstuck and achieve extraordinary results. We're going to learn how we can become limitless from Laura Gassner Audi right after this. This podcast is sponsored by Eddie Turner, LLC. Eddie Turner, LLC delivers executive and leadership coaching, professional speaking, facilitation services, and management consulting across the globe. Eddie Turner, LLC also creates voiceovers, serves as a master of ceremonies, as a panel and event moderator, and provides national media commentary. Visit eddieturnerllc.com to learn more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Keep Leading Podcast, the podcast dedicated to leadership development and leadership insights. I'm your host, Eddie Turner, the Leadership Accelerator. I work with leaders to accelerate performance and drive impact. I'm incredibly excited about my guest today. My guest today helps people get unstuck and achieve extraordinary results. Her 25-year resume is defined by her entrepreneurial edge. She served as a presidential appointee in the Bill Clinton White House. She helped shape AmeriCorps. She left a leadership role at a respected nonprofit search firm, Isaacson Miller, to expand the startup execsearches.com and founded and ran the Nonprofit Professionals Advisory Group, which partnered with the full gamut of mission-driven nonprofit executives from startup dreamers to scaling social entrepreneurs to global philanthropists. She is the author of Mission Driven, a book for those moving from profit to purpose and limitless. How to ignore everybody Carve out your own path and live your best life. And that goes live tomorrow, April the 2nd, 2019. It's already a bestseller. It's at number eight this morning on Amazon and Washington Post had it as number two, right behind Michelle Obama's book last week. (laughs) She's an instigator, a motivator. And a provocateur, and she's never met a revolution she didn't like. I am excited to welcome the amazing Laura Gassner Odding. Laura, welcome to the show. Thank you. And boy, I love your crystal ball. Let's hope that that's where the Washington Post puts me. Well, that's where I found that. I was doing some research uh, about you before the show, and I saw that, and I said, well, first of all, when I met you, I just thought you were a nice lady in New York City. And then I learned later on, you know what? She's really a big deal. <laughs> I actually have a um I actually have a little plaque on my desk that says I'm kind of a big deal. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 
it was when I sold my last business to my team, I sort of went through this moment of like identity crisis. Like, who am I when I'm no longer CEO of this big thing? And a friend of mine who knew I was suffering with it and trying to figure out what my next thing was going to be, instead of having a little plaque that has your name on it, bought me one that just says, I'm kind of a big deal. And so I'm kind of a big deal. I even have the plaque to prove it. I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> I love it. Well, that is so apropos for you because that's just how I felt. And you're everywhere. I mean, you are published. You've done a TED Talk. And even last month, I saw that you were in Inc.com, uh, featured 20 little things highly successful people do, and the rest of us probably don't. What a great article. Well, thank you very much. It's been, um, it's been quite a fun ride. Now, Laura, your book is receiving just amazing accolades all over the place. And in fact, you've received advanced praise from Amy Cuddy, uh, the famous TEDx speaker herself, uh, New York Times bestselling author, and Dory Clark, who I've become a big fan of uh, for her bestsellers and her uh, series of Harvard Business Review articles, her work at Duke, and she's on the speaking circuit now, and even former Governor Patrick Duvall. So everybody's talking about you and this book. So tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write it. Well, you know, I spent 20 years interviewing leaders uh, for as I was running a search firm that worked specifically in the nonprofit sector. And, you know, we, we always assume that people who work in nonprofits have purpose, right? Lofty purpose, higher goals, all this stuff. And so they must feel like their work matters. They must be happy in their work. And I noticed that they really weren't, you know, to wit, they were coming to me as a recruiter looking for new jobs. And I was constantly amazed that success didn't always equal happiness. And then I started to look at my own career and said, you know, I was successful too. I filled in all the right checkboxes along everybody else's path to everybody else's version of success and I don't know that I'm entirely happy. You know, I leaned in. I did all the right things. I got to the top, but the top of what? And when I started to look around at people that were, you know, millennials coming up, that were boomers retiring, that were my peers as Gen Xers, I realized that this was not just a problem I had, but it was a problem that a lot of us shared, that we, we, we really, we work and we strive and we push to get to success. And then we don't really feel that successful because it's hard to be insatiably hungry for someone else's goals. And so the book really is based around the idea that if success doesn't equal happiness, then what does? And the mm. answer is that it's not just success writ large for everybody or defined by other people. It's success as it's defined for you and personally and only you. Wow. You said a mouthful there. <laughs> <laughs> I often do. <laughs> so let me uh, just... Uh, First of all, I can't imagine you not being happy. I mean, you just, you are so vivacious uh, when someone meets you in person. I, you're, you're just uh, a bundle of joy and so optimistic. And one of the things that I did take away is the level of success that you had achieved. I think you and I could spend more time talking about your work in executive search. And I think that's kind of where we connected. But uh, for you to say that you reached a point that you had to kind of reexamine things is very insightful. So you wrote the book. And as you wrote it, you came up with a couple of different frameworks. Uh, for example, you talk about four elements of consonants. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so what I learned is that 
in order to be successful, it has to be defined for you as, as, as what works for you personally. And that means consonants. That means alignment. It means flow. It means some way where everything that you do, the best of what you are, are asked to do is being assigned to the task at hand. Consonance is when what you do matches who you are. And I learned that it comes from four elements. Number one, calling. This larger goal, this purpose that you have, this thing that's bigger than you. And as I mentioned, it doesn't necessarily have to be from the nonprofit sector. It doesn't have to be a, a, a lofty purpose. It has to be your purpose. So if your purpose, if your calling is curing cancer, great. If your calling is building your own business, great. If your calling is buying a Maserati in a beach house, great. Like the only one who gets to vote about your purpose is you. And the problem is that we spend a lot of time giving votes to people who shouldn't even have voices in our lives. So that's the first element. The second is, uh, the second is connection. How do we know that our work at this moment in this box, in this organizational chart, in this company matters? What if we didn't call in, what if we called in sick to work tomorrow? Would it make a difference? Would anybody notice? And is the work that you're doing actually connected to the calling that you're wishing to serve? That's number two. Number three, contribution. So if you're, if the connection to the work is all, you know, is all about the work, then contribution is all about you. How does this work allow you to manifest your values into the world on a daily basis, to have the lifestyle that you want, the flexibility, the money that allows you to have the kind of life you want, or does it allow you to have the career trajectory that you're looking for, the velocity and the speed at which you want to build your career? And then lastly, control. How much personal agency do you have over how you build your career so that it fills the life that you want, so that you're connected to your calling and have contribution to, 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 to the kind of life that you want to have? And each one of us at every age and at every life stage is going to want some version of calling, connection, contribution, and control in different ways. So what worked for me, Eddie, might not work for you. And what works for me right now at 48 years old probably didn't work for me at 28 and probably won't work for me at 68. So each one of us at every different age and every different life stage is going to sort of ebb and flow through the seasons of our lives so that we can actually use work to help us build the kind of life that we want to have. So you have a nice mnemonic there for us to be able to remember it. So the four elements of consonants are four C's. So calling, connection, contribution, and control. But if I'm struggling to figure out what my real calling is, how can you help me? How does the book help me figure that out? So the book helps you, but I also set up an assessment. Because, you know, everybody likes to take quizzes about themselves. So I set up an assessment. It's at LimitlessAssessment.com. Um, and LimitlessAssessment.com will walk the respondent through about 60 questions or so. It doesn't take a ton of time, but it's not super short. It's about 10 to 15 minutes. And these questions are pretty catalyzing questions that get you really thinking about, um, about who you are and what really matters to you personally. And at the end of the quiz, the respondent gets a really beautiful radar chart that I'm super proud of myself for learning how to make. Um, one of the diagrams shows you how much calling, connection, contribution, and control you have in your life. And the other one, which we hope overlaps somewhat, shows you how much of each of the elements of calling, connection, contribution, and control you want to have in your life. And then, of course, where these are not aligned is where you're not in consonance. The graph's not in consonance, you're not in consonance. And then it gives people tips about things that they can do to get there. So that's the first thing that I would say. The second thing I would say is don't give up hope. 
right? We all go, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would love to have this. It sounds all well and good, but I listen to a lot of like, you know, self-help stuff and it doesn't really, I don't really get there. And I think that's because we spend a lot of time thinking about things like follow your passion, which is lovely and incomplete, right? It's an Instagram meme, usually with a flaxen haired blonde with the flower crown looking over a sunset at Coachella or something, but it doesn't actually give us the roadmap. And so the reason that I think that the framework in this book works is specifically because it's a framework. I mean, if Albert Einstein said that all knowledge is experience, and I do firmly believe that, you don't really know something until you've experienced it, with all due respect to our friend Al, I believe that if all knowledge is experience, then all wisdom is framework. And the difference between a wall of smarts, somebody and going like, wow, you know, that this, you know, she's right. I could never do it, but she's right. And wisdom that actually allows you to take actionable steps to get from here to there is this is, is, is the framework that you have. That's when somebody goes, oh, that's right. And I can see how I can apply that to my life. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And I noticed that you had the assessment and I thought that was fascinating. And I think that listeners will want to definitely take advantage of that. We're going to put the link that you mentioned in our show notes uh, for those who are listening to this and they're in transit. So it's limitlessassessment.com, but it will be in the show notes. What we're going to do now is pause to have a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by Eddie Turner, LLC. Organizations who need to accelerate the development of their leaders call Eddie Turner the Leadership Accelerator. Eddie works with leaders to accelerate performance and drive impact. Call Eddie Turner to help your leaders one-on-one as their coach or to inspire them as a group through the power of facilitation or a keynote address. Visit eddieturnerllc.com to learn more. This is Jeffrey Hazlett, Chairman and CEO of the C-Suite Network, and you're listening to the Keep Leading Podcast with Eddie Turner. We're back. I invite you to subscribe to the Keep Leading Podcast and share with your friends. Please leave a review for me on iTunes so I know you're out there and I know what you're thinking. If you leave a review for me on iTunes or share this podcast on social media, please tag me and then send me a message so I'll know. I'll send you a digital copy of my best-selling book, 140 Simple Messages to Guide Emerging Leaders. And I'll also give you a shout out on social media and on the Keep Leading Podcast. Okay, everyone, we're talking to Laura gassner Otting. She is the author of Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Out Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. It goes on sale everywhere, April the 2nd, 2019. And I was privileged to get an advanced copy. And I, I just think it's an amazing book. You've done a, a really nice job uh, putting this book together, Laura. Thank you very much. I have um, my editor to thank for that. <laughs> <laughs> what I put together was a whole lot of stuff. And she actually made it uh, She made it sound really good. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I think we give ourselves ideas and labels and we try to fit ourselves into them. And this book was originally called Purpose how to do Mm. that matters. And it wasn't until I felt like that was constraining, that that was in fact limiting me, that I had a conversation with a great speaker friend of mine, Clay A. Bear, who's brilliant about how to make introductions to people. He's working on a great book about how to make the perfect introduction. You should definitely have him on your show. Um, And he's like, no, that's not going to work. And 
how do you, um, what do you want people to feel like when they finish reading the book? And I sort of talked to him about it and we spent 45 minutes. And at the end of which he was like, so you want them to be limitless? You want them to ignore everybody, carve their own path and live their best life? And I was like, yes. And he goes, good. That's your book. And I said, I love you, man. And I, <laughs> I want, I don't speak to you none. I would love to talk to you like for hours and hours, but I need to hang up the phone right now and go write that book. And I think the book poured out of me in like three weeks because it became something that was so true to my core and so who I am that it, it, I ended up being able to, to, to talk about it, to say it, to put it in my language, put it in my words, put it in my own cadence, tenor and tone, which when we do that, you know, here's something here, here we go. Meta put me in consonance, right? It allowed me to be the full version of myself so that I could bring this book out into the world in a way that, you know, crazy, like, right. Lands on the, <laughs> on this Washington Post list behind Michelle Obama. And Michelle, if you're listening, call me, girl. We can. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you, and that's one of the things that's so fascinating about you. You have this amazing political background, having served not many people that I know can say that they served in the white house. Uh, you uh, are an executive, an executive search and very successful. Uh, but then you believe in giving back and you're doing a lot of work in the nonprofit space. And so uh, you, you just you just are so well-rounded. Thank you for that. I appreciate that. I, you know, I'm a firm believer that you show up for people who show up for you, for people who are, and you show up sometimes for people who don't show up for you, right? You just, you show up for the things that matter to you and you never really know how that's going to come back into your life. And so I had a, we had this big book party last night to celebrate the launch of the book tomorrow. And I, I it was pouring rain and it, we had 120 people in my house and they were everyone from you know, the woman who, the managing editor of the Boston Globe to friends of mine on my rowing team that are you know, 24 years old. And, and it just like the mix of people that are there. And I just, I don't know. I've, I've, I've always eschewed labels where somebody says, you know, you're a nonprofit person or a political person or a corporate person. And I think those are just, those are just tax statuses. You know, I think, <laughs> and you show up, you know, as well as you possibly can everywhere you go. And, you know, you collect great people everywhere. And it's, it's, I just do the things that I think are right. And I do good work. And if that work begets more good work, then great, wonderful. And if it doesn't, then that's not what the market was looking for. So I do something different. I'll have to keep that in mind. Those are all just different tax statuses. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that you can be somebody who makes a bajillion dollars working at a hedge fund and donate money to a nonprofit cause and you're, you're considered a philanthropist, right? Or you could make not a lot of money working in a nonprofit organization and sacrifice and, you know, you, you don't get your, your name on the side of the wall. But who's to say one of those people is more valuable to the nonprofit than the other? They're both valuable in completely different ways. Very well said. Very well said. Now, I, I want to ask you about uh, how you opened your book. You opened the book with a very riveting story. And then you say, and I'd like to read this verbatim and let you kind of talk about it and share it with our listeners. What I learned is this, the void is often clearer than the solution. We know when things aren't right. We just don't always quite know what's wrong. When you're confused or unsatisfied in your work or your life, the void is all too obvious. Solving for the void is where things become difficult. I thought that was powerful. And I just love to have you speak to that and the story that made you come to this conclusion. So the story that I talk about 
is a story of Josh Mance. And Josh Mance is a guy that I met when he and I were both speaking. We were volunteering to speak at a, um, at a, at an army base in Japan on behalf of a nonprofit called American Dream U. American Dream U works with uh, soldiers who are transitioning out of the army to help them figure out how to find a job when they leave. The transition assistance program in, in the armed services is historically known to be incomplete, to be, to be pretty terrible. Um, and so this nonprofit works with them to go around to different army bases around the world and help them figure out, you know, how do you network and how do you put together a LinkedIn profile and how do you figure out what you even might want to do next? So they put together a group of about six speakers. Uh, there was me, there was a, a vet who works with homeless women, there was the COO of Starbucks Japan, um, and there was Josh. And Josh uh, died on the field in Iraq. So right now your reader, your listeners are going, wait, what? He was there speaking. Josh died on the field of, on, in Iraq and um, was brought back to life 15 full minutes later, miraculously, right? But also miraculously with his full brain working perfectly fine. And when the, when the nonprofit called me up, I was like, all right, I'm happy to do whatever you need. I'm happy to speak whenever you want. Just don't let, don't make me follow the dead guy. Like I'm, I'm a pretty good speaker, but I can't follow the dead guy. That's way too hard. <laughs> Nobody can follow the dead guy. Right. <laughs> and I was sort of joking around about it. And then I went and I actually ended up speaking right before him. And so I sat down and, and when you speak to a group of, of, soldiers, they sit in this very sort of upright posture, sort of staring straight at you. And you have no idea if they're plotting your death or if they're loving what you're saying. They're just like in full information intake mode. And so they did, it was a little disconcerting and they did this throughout my talk. And then I sat down and then he got up to speak. And as he speaks, he starts saying things like, I knew exactly what was happening when you know, I knew exactly what was happening when the bullet ripped through my armor. I knew exactly what was happening when, um, it, you know, it pierced my, my femoral artery. I knew exactly what was happening as my blood was pulling into my chest cavity in a last ditch effort to save my life. And he tells the story and every one of these soldiers just like leans forward in a way that I was like, okay, see, I should go back. I didn't follow the dead guy. Josh was in this incredibly, uh, meteoric rise. He was, you know, the youngest to be promoted over and over and over again. He was leading this, this, his, his troops in their surveillance when he was shot by, by, by an enemy sniper and killed. When he came back to life, he tried to attack the recovery. He tried to attack, uh, the, the continued career in the army with so much ferocity that he had a, he had a, um, another health attack, uh, that almost killed him again. And so he had to leave the army. And so he did what? He, went to the fastest growing uh, private sector company in the world, Tesla, because he thought, well, that's who I am in my core. And he did the same thing. He leaned in and he, you know, the pace was like military. The, 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 the mission was taking over the world. The leader was this inspirational, you know, uh, charismatic iconoclast. And it all felt very familiar to him. But he kept getting called to speak um, at, at conferences, at universities, for co corporations about trauma and what really happens to soldiers when they come back to from war. And he really, he said he had an allurement. It, he was drawn to this, but he didn't have alignment in his life with what he was doing. You know, he would, he would, he would do all this work for Tesla, um, building employment engagement programs, and he would race to the airport and go somewhere and speak. And then he would race back and he would go back to Tesla. And he, he was sort of caught between the two and he knew something was missing, but he couldn't figure out what. 
And the problem he was having was that all along the way, everybody he encountered was like, you're the luckiest guy in the world. And meanwhile, he didn't feel like he was lucky because he was exhausted. He felt guilty. He was in suicidal spirals. He was having PTSD spouts. And I, I tell the story of him in the beginning of the book because I wanted people to understand that if the luckiest guy in the world couldn't figure it all out, then we're all okay. The fact that we're trying to figure it out too, that it's pretty difficult. So you know, the void for him was that he knew something was missing. He couldn't figure out what it was, but he knew he had to do something different. He couldn't continue to be in this place where work was on one side of the fence and life was on the other and they were battling against each other. And he had to figure out how to, a, a way to align these two parts of himself. And so what that ended up looking like was him leaving Tesla and going into healthcare and he's now getting a PhD and he is now moving into this world where he's creating um, a consulting practice where he works with individuals, with corporations to help them and their people turn their scars into their strengths. Well, how about that? I was just fascinated by that story. And as I, I feel that my listeners are being rewarded by hearing you tell it. Because as I was reading it, I, you could, you can't see me, but I, even now I'm kind of cringing because you tell it so vividly. And I did not even want to attempt to try to recount it. And so I'm so happy you did that for our listeners because it's a great story and helps us to be able to look at our own lives through another lens. I, you know, I, I've, I've only, I've only had the opportunity to read from the book once and I did not quite know where to start, but I, that was the one that I started with because I, I just feel like, it's, it grabs people so quickly and it's sort of, it's sort of an unimpeachable story. You know, it's, it's, if this guy can't get it right, then I think we can all give ourselves a little bit of a break. <laughs> Absolutely. And I agree with you as a fellow speaker. There's no way I'd want to follow that story. <laughs> if I was on the speaking, uh... <laughs> and not only that, I mean, Josh is incredibly charismatic. He's just earnest. He's, and, and, and his book, The Beauty of a Darker Soul, actually tells the story of him dying and, and the fight coming back to and through the life that he's built. And I'd recommend it for your, for your readers, for your listeners as well. Thank you. Well, we always appreciate good book recommendations. If I could, I would love to have you tell one other story I think is going to really resonate with my, my listeners. And that is this radical personal life shift. Can you talk about Tom Webster briefly for us? Yeah. So Tom Webster is uh, someone I know on the speaking circuit. He, um, Tom is somebody who has always prided himself on an incredible amount of professional rigor. Um, he is somebody who, he works at a company called Edison. And Edison, uh, if you don't know them, if you've ever watched election results, you know them because they are the people who provide data to the national pool of journalists who report on who's won what election. When they call the races, it's because Edison has given them information. Now, Edison has that contract because in 2000, another company had that contract and they called the race for Al Gore in Florida before that was actually official. So mm. as you might imagine, <laughs> they lost that contract fairly quickly <laughs> and Edison got the contract. And so Edison's whole, uh, their whole ethos is they'd rather get it right than get it first. And he deeply believes in, in, in data above all about honesty and things being, you know, being right. And he had to do a ton of traveling for work. And he was, he was, he would, he would travel for days. He would come home. He'd travel for days again. I mean, his work put him on the road all the time. And he really, when he would get home, he loved traveling. I mean, he's like me. He's got, you know, wanderlust. He's you. Like we all, we travel for a living as speakers. Um, and he, he would find himself, um, 
almost cringing, you know, to come back home. He didn't want to be home. He liked being on the road and he would get home and he would go to work and he would start nitpicking about all the things he thought was wrong with the job that he had at, at, at Edison and why it, it didn't work. Now, Tom has been at Edison for 14 years and at 14 years, he's still one of the shortest tenured people there. Like people don't leave. People love working at Edison. And then one day he realized that it wasn't the job that made him unhappy. It was the home life that made him unhappy. And so he made the very difficult decision to get divorced and the very good decision to get remarried. And when he did that, everything snapped into place. He became a better father. He became a better worker. He became happier in his life. And, you know, the story is in the book because it, you know, we think if I need to, if I'm using my career to have the life that I want, then if something's wrong, I should fix my career. But sometimes it's the life that you've built that's not actually in line with the career. That's the thing that's really giving you consonants. Wow. You are really giving us a lot to think about and packed your book in this interview with uh, some really interesting stories that we can think about and examine ourselves under a different light. If I had time, I would just love to talk to you because you're so fascinating. Uh, I'd love to talk about some of your work in search and some of your work in, in, in public speaking. And I'd love to know more about the TED Talk and then encourage my listeners to go out and look up your TED Talk. And uh, you discovered your inner athlete at age 40. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about that, because I think that that's just amazing. So I ran my first mile when I turned 38 years old. I mean, I was the kid who had every single possible excuse to get out of PE class. Um, and I was never like fat. I was never thin. I was just kind of there. And I had had two kids. I was walking into my kid's school one day and I saw the head of school and I was like, God, Ellen, you look amazing. She's like 65 years old. Um, and I was like, you look incredible. Either you have, you've been really sick and you've lost a lot of weight or there's a new man in your life and you look way too good, (laughs) way too good to have, been really sick. So what's his name? And she's like, well, there is a new man in my life. And his name is Mike, Coach Mike. And I was like, wait a minute. And so she takes me to this boot camp. And at the end of this boot camp in this dirty, dusty boys and girls club basement, um, you run laps around around the the, um, the gym. And it's like 37 laps or something. So you can finally get to a mile. And he gives us these little teeny straws um, that you have to like throw down on the ground every time you, you know, you pass the, the, the door. And it took me, it took me uh, a full six weeks before I could actually get, you know, all 37 of those things without stopping and gasping. But once I did, I was like, oh, hmm, what if I strung three of these together? Could I do a 5K? So I signed up for a 5K and six weeks later, me and Ellen and Mike ran the 5K. And at the end of the 5K, I was like, well, what if I could do a 10K? So I signed up and I did a 10K. And at the end of that, I was like, wouldn't it be cool if I could do a half marathon? That's crazy beans. <laughs> so I signed up to do a half marathon. And um, while I was training for that, I was like, you know, I live in Boston. The Boston Marathon's kind of a thing. Why don't I do the Boston Marathon? And my husband was like, you're crazy. That's the silliest thing I've ever heard. And I said, well, if I can get a bib in the next five minutes, would you like fully support this and not tell me I'm crazy for the next six months of training? And now remember, the Boston Marathon is a, is, a, is a marathon you have to qualify for. And I'm, you know, old and slow. <laughs> so I can't qualify for it, but you can also get a charity bib and raise money. Now, you know, as we've discussed, I've spent a lot of time working in nonprofits. So I post on Facebook, um, you know, today, t- today, the, today, the, uh, the sidewalk, next April, the road, who's got a bib for me? And within five minutes, Four different nonprofit executive directors like, hey, run for us, run for us, run for us, run for us. So I got a bib and I started trading and I ran the Boston Marathon. 
Now, ran is a little bit of a generous term. I had been training for a sub four hour marathon thinking that's like, you know, a standard. That's like a gold standard. You know, mm-hmm. you do a sub four, you can't. It's like, okay, I can do this. And then it was 92 degrees on Marathon Monday. Are you serious? I'm serious. In fact, oh my. I saw my husband at mile 16 and he he took bags of ice, Ziploc bags, and like shoved them in my sports bra. And when I saw a friend at mile 17, she was like, oh my God, bags of ice. That's so smart. And I was like, where'd these come from? I mean, I was so out of it. I was not lucid whatsoever. And wow. um, <laughs> so it was hot and it took me five hours and 12 minutes and it was really sad. And so a friend called me up and said, I know that you're sad. I know we've talked about maybe one day doing Chicago. What do you think we do Chicago? And I said, okay. And she goes, good, because I've already signed you up for it. <laughs> so four that's months, a friend. <laughs> yeah, so six months later, I'm running Chicago with her. Um, I'm sad to say I didn't make four hours. I did 409. Um, but I also had an injury and I couldn't feel my left foot for like 23 of the 26 miles. And then I was deeply involved in the charity group and the marathon bombing happened in 2013. And while I said I was never going to run another marathon, I felt really, I felt the need to do it. And so 2014, I ran another marathon. Now, running three marathons, having never run a mile before, running three marathons in the course of two years is not very good for your body. So I was hurting everywhere. And I joined a gym really for the first time in my life. And I um, was assigned a random trainer. And that random trainer was a rower and he's trying to get, you know, an Olympic rowing campaign going. And he taught me how to lift weight. And suddenly I'm like bench pressing 225 pounds. You've seen me, but your listeners haven't. I'm five foot five and weigh 130 pounds. So, you know, I'm, and I'm 48. So, you know, I'm moving weight around and he's like, you should try out for the competitive team. And so I, you know, fast forward through a lot of learning how to row over the course of a couple of years. I now row on a women's competitive team. So this person who was never athletic now is on a boat, you know, at 5 a.m. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And when the coach calls me an athlete, hey, athletes, we're going to do this. That. <laughs> I'm giggling to myself like, oh, my God, she's talking about us. How about that? Well, I got to admit, because when I met you, it was cold. We we're in New York City and you were in sweaters and such. As I was getting ready for the podcast interview and, and selecting the, the photo things I want to use for you, there were several photos of you. And I got to admit, there's one photo of you out there where you can give Michelle Obama a run for her money, not just on <laughs> the book rankings, but I tell you, you, you got the guns going there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because uh, she was here in Boston speaking at a conference and I was talking to a friend of mine who organized and I was like, I would do anything you want <laughs> if you could get me a picture of her and she and I could throw up the guns together. Oh, because, wow. Yeah. That would be a great photo. That would be a great it be, photo. It would be a great photo. It would be super fun. Well, Laura, thank you so much for having spent this time with talking to me and a lot of my listeners to be able to hear your story. This has been fascinating. And I guess if we could say the, the big takeaway for our, our listeners is to be limitless. What yes. do you think? I think I think it's to stop listening to everybody else's definition of who you are and what you are and what you've been and find those multitudes within you and grow and change and become who you want to be. It's it's we can all be limitless. And here on the Keep Leading Podcast, we want our listeners to have a leadership quote that they can live by. Can you share a leadership quote that you like to use? Well, I like to tell, you know, every time something goes well, you have a party, you have a celebration, you buy a nice car, you go on a vacation, somebody goes, oh, it's so great. You deserve it. And I started getting really angry about that because nobody deserves anything. We work really hard for it. And so I like to tell people if I waited around my whole life for everything I deserved, I'd never get what I demanded. Mm, I like that.
And where can our listeners learn more about you? So they can find me on all the socials at HeyLGO and online it's HeyLGO.com, H-E-Y-L-G-O. Thank you. And that also will go in the show notes as well. I really appreciate you being here, Laura. I want to say thank you again. And that concludes this episode, everyone. This is Eddie Turner, the Leadership Accelerator, reminding you that leadership is not about our title or our position. Leadership is an activity. It's about action. And it's not the case of once a leader, always a leader. It's not a garment we put on and take off. We must be a leader at our core and allow it to emanate in all we do. So whatever you're doing, always keep leading. Thank you for listening to your host, Eddie Turner, on the Keep Leading Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to the Keep Leading Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. For more information about Eddie Turner's work, please visit eddieturnerllc.com. Thank you for listening to C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.